Hello. Hello, John. Hi there, Dan Benjamin. I can hear you. I can hear you. That is fantastic. In the famous words of George W. Bush, standing on the smoldering rubble of the 9-11 World Trade Center mm. crash pile, mm -hmm. I can hear you, he said famously, in a moment of incredible statesmanship, and the country fell in love with him. Mm -hmm. I remember the exact happening just that way. Yep. And then after that, he couldn't fail. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. never did. He never did. And he, he never, never did. did. He never did. He kept our country safe. <laughs> um, I mean, I felt safe with him, you know. Yeah, you were down there in Texas. Why mm. wouldn't you feel safe? No, I wasn't in Texas. when. Oh, you were in Philadelphia. Still, no, huh? I was still in Florida. Let's not talk about it. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Even when you say the word Florida, <laughs> you know. put in an extra vowel somehow. It's like yeah. Florida, Florida. Mm, mm, it's not good. It's no, not good. It's not. I have a friend who lived here in Seattle for many years, and she was she was from Tampa, and she moved. She she eventually uh, reached her absolute limit here in Seattle and moved back to Tampa. And reports um, all the time that she's never been happier. The people in the Northwest are so unfriendly. Everyone is so depressed. She couldn't live here another day. And now she's back in Florida where she belongs, and she's East Coast person, ride till she dies. She texts me this all the time in this kind of gloating voice. She's a little bit of a gloater, mm. but a fun, fun gloater. Okay. Uh, when Gonzaga lost the basketball game uh, recently, she texted me in the middle of the night, and she was like, she knows that I went to Gonzaga, but also that I don't really care about Final Four and mm -hmm. probably didn't even know it was happening. Mm -hmm. But she was like, hey, um, I bet a bunch of money on the game, and I'd like you to reach out to your friends who went to Gonzaga mm -hmm. and tell them in their face, I just won 500 bucks on, uh, getting, on Gonzaga getting its ass kicked. Nobody down here gives a shit. But I really want to rub it in somebody's face. So will you please rub it in your hmm. in your college friend's face for me? Right. And I was like, it's one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Are you serious? Do you not have anything else going on? And she was like, I just really need this right now. <laughs> and so, so <laughs> I texted funny. I texted a bunch of my sports friends. And I was like, hey, my ex girlfriend down in Florida really wants you guys to know that she. She bet against you, and she won five hundred bucks. And mm -hmm. so, anyway, suck it. And they were all they were all super mad. And I was like, "Yeah, well, all right, you guys. I should give you each other's numbers." And you know, they were like, "You were right to break up with her, man. She sounds like a total." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. You're mm -hmm. not wrong." Mm -hmm. Anyway, she's very Florida. When I think of Florida, and that's who you think of. I'm glad you don't think of me when you think of Florida. That would have been very disheartening and disturbing. No, I don't. I don't think of you. I don't think of Merlin. I think of Nicole mm -hmm. and there she is down there. Happy, absolutely happy. As you know, it seems like there are a lot of people who really, really, really love Florida. Yeah. And if so if many people there, there are so many people there, not all of them love it, but there are a lot of people who really love it. And there are a lot, I will, I will go on record with you, John. Yeah. And I will say there are a lot of things that are great in Florida oh, or about Florida, but that's quite a concession, but none of those things make me want to live there. 
they're wonderful things to do. They're wonderful activities. Um, but it, it's, it's rare that I go to a place when I'm on a trip or visiting or vacation or something. It's rare that I'll go and I'll say, this, this is what I, this is where I want to live. I want to live in this place. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has happened a few times. It happened in Austin. It happened in North Carolina. I grew up in Philly and always wanted to stay there. Uh, but never when I visited Florida did I really think this is, this is where I want to be. Definitely I, when I visit Colorado, I think, yeah, like maybe not right now, but eventually I sure would like to wind up here. Mm. And as much as I loved Portland, um, I never felt like, yeah, I want to live here because mm-hmm. I feel like Austin has everything in Portland has and more. Sorry, Portland. Wow. So you're really throwing down the gauntlet, but you know, Portland, the people in Portland, I don't think are as aggressively Portland as they were even five years ago. So I think you might get away with that comment and, and yeah. not get a ton of letters. Now I've never been to Seattle, as you know. Yeah, that's a, that's a disappointment, but I, you know, I honestly don't think you'll come to Seattle and say, where have you been all my life? Hmm. But I no, just, I, I mean, there's what strikes me is John is that there are people who go to Florida and they say, "Yeah, like this, this is what I want. This is what I've been wanting." Anything yeah. the allure. Let me let me segue into this. The allure of Florida comes, I think, has was everything that was the promise of Florida is gone now. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. When my grandparents moved there. I think they moved there, excuse me, maybe in the late 70s. That's my guess is when they moved there. They had retired and my, uh, they wanted to be in the warmth. They were tired of living in, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and cold places. They just wanted something easy. And back in those days, late 70s, early 80s, especially where they went, which was, of course, was Boca Raton. It was idyllic. It was beautiful. Everything was manicured. The palm trees were tall and beautiful, and it looked it looked like those beautiful pictures you've seen of the really expensive parts of Los Angeles, where the wealthiest of the wealthy live. It looked like that, but it wasn't Mm. expensive. That's the whole Mm. thing: is it was Ah. not expensive. Uh, and you could buy land there. You could get big houses. You could get condos right on the beach, which is what my grandparents wound up in. And it was all very affordable and it was easy living. It was easy, you know, and as there was a phenomenon there that I'm sure you've heard of, everyone's probably heard of this called snowbirds, Uh which are people who are maybe not fully retired, but maybe retired, but they relocate to South Florida when it gets cold, wherever it is that they live in the wintertime. So you had a huge influx of people. And so I remember this vividly growing and growing more in the early eighties where these people would be coming from places like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New York, Boston, the Northeast for the most part. And they would come and visit and stay and they might rent a condo. They might have second property there and it would all of a sudden get kind of congested and there would be traffic and there would be lots of delays and there would be lots of bridge openings and other things. And it made it kind of unbearable because it went from being a really chill town where you didn't have to wait in lots of lines and the food was really good and things were cool 
to now there's just too many people on these tiny little roads. And now that's the way it is all the time because there's 10 times more people than there were years ago, but it, it wasn't really ever ready for that. And so the areas like where, where we used to live, we were essentially right up. It felt like to the edge of the Everglades, we were 20 minutes from the beach, which was like ridiculous. Like my friends who lived much closer would thought that we were in the middle of nowhere. And now where we are, isn't even considered West, you know, Del Rey or West Boca or whatever anymore. It, it It's considered like really prime close to the beach area. And now there's 20, 30, 40 minutes further out in those directions. But what you've, all of the allure, the mystique of mystique. what South Florida had to offer, the beautiful beaches, the, you know, you could go on the beach and just, it wasn't packed with thousands of people. It was, there was a bit of nature still. You could get great shells walking on the beach. You could see dolphins if you went out early enough, you know, like it, all of that's gone now. And now it's just as congested and busy and noisy and the people are very, very rude and the drivers are the worst and the roads are terrible. And, you know, yeah, you still get some places that have good food and yeah, you still can go to the beach. Uh, but that that feeling of the sort of lazy, almost almost had a beachy town kind of feel. It, it was never like the Keys were in that way, but it it did, there was... As you got closer to the ocean, there was that sort of slower pace that you kind of felt. And I don't know, it was like all of that's gone. All of that, that vibe that made Florida good. Now, sure, you can still go and get get on a boat and ride on the intercoastal, but you're going to be on there with a thousand other people who had the same idea. And it just isn't, it isn't the kind of cool, chill, fun place that I remember it being. And... I mean, that's natural that things like that are going to happen. But the reasons that someone might have had to live in Florida before, they're they're harder to reach those things now. You know, you can still get a boat, but you're going to be competing with everybody else who has a boat as opposed to just you and the people you want out on the boat left alone. It's just so busy now. Hmm. And I feel like that's, like I said, like that's a natural thing to happen, but... I can't imagine going to Florida now and and getting off the plane and having that bracing heat and humidity that just slams you, that you can take a shower and from the time it takes you to get out of your front door into your car, you're already sweating. Not because it's hot, but because the humidity just, it's a sauna out there. And that like people are going to experience that and say, yeah, like this is, this is what I want every day. And it's the humidity affects you in the wintertime too. In the wintertime, because that humidity is always 90%. It just makes it so that the cold, even when it's only in the fifties, that is a penetrating cold and 50 degrees in Florida with the humidity is like 30 degrees here. Like it's, you can't get, you can't get warm. You just can't get warm. Hmm. And uh, it's, I don't know. There's just so like the idea, like what, what are people going there for? What are they, what are they doing there? Like visiting? Oh yeah. Like visiting, you could do the beach, you can boat, you can, you know, eat out on the water somewhere. It's amazing. You have got, you know, in central Florida, you got Disney world, you've got, you know, Miami beach, you got South beach. It's a great place for 
parties and hanging out and there's amazing restaurants and nightclubs and it's super international and there's art and there's culture. That's Miami. But I mean, unless you plan to really immerse yourself in like that specific kind of community, like who just goes and like shows up in Florida and is like, yeah, let's just buy a track home in Oviedo. You know, we're only, we're only 50 minutes away from the parks here. We can go once in a while. Oh, tickets are $300. Okay. Well, probably won't go to the parks, but there's a, there's a good Tijuana flats around the corner. It does decent. Well, it's not that good. Like, what are people there? Oh, the hurricanes, tornadoes, humidity, heat, aggressive drivers, crime, strange laws, Florida man. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's it's like, what are you going? I want to know from our listeners, John, if you've, like, went to Florida and it hit you, like, I've got to live here. How did that happen? That's what I'm asking. That's what I want to know. How did that happen? How did you go from, I'm living in this one place and now I went to Florida and I loved it and I had to move there. Like I dropped everything. I just had to move there. Not for a job, doesn't count. But because you wanted the humidity and the heat and the flip-flop wearing. And I'm not talking about Miami because Miami's awesome. But everything else. The swap shop? Are you there for the swap shop in Sunrise? That's where I used to go to buy all the cool ninja stuff when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. They actually sharpened the throwing stars there. <laughs> what? Isn't that illegal? Yeah. Yeah. So I bought a butterfly knife sharpened... at age 11. Wow. Mm-hmm. I knew some kids that sharpened their they're shuriken, uh-huh. but I had no idea that you could buy them that way. Yeah, this this place uh, did it. Wow. I mean, it was very under the table. I mean, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, I have never fully understood. Well, you know, everything that you just said, minus the humidity, is the confusion I have about the state of Arizona. Mm. Um, because Arizona is super hot. Mm-hmm. And Arizona is, and and again, as you have made many disclaimers, mm. uh, I will make disclaimers also. I'm not talking about the beautiful um, wilderness of northern mm. Arizona, right? And I'm not, and I will give a, I'll give a broad exception to the city of Tucson, which is a kind of much smaller Austin. There's a lot of culture in Tucson. It's cool. It's got cool things. It's got, or at least it used to have, one of the world's craziest guitar stores or music stores that ever existed in the, on the earth. A guitar store where it was very clear that no one in the guitar store, which took up a city block, was interested in selling you anything and never had been interested in selling you anything. <laughs> so there, there's there was 50 years worth of stuff piled in the corners and, and no one, no one cared to even look through it. We always speculated that there were like Stratocasters from the fifties back there under a, under a hay bale, but, but who would know? Cause the guys up front here were selling Casio keyboards because they were, they were something they could reach anyway, broad exception to the city of Tucson and 
I'll even go so far as to give an exception to the people living in the beautiful mid-century homes in the in Scottsdale. But on the main, the people in the in the uh, in the sort of golf coursey Phoenix environs, the gated communities of Phoenix, and really anything to do with Phoenix. Why? Why are there millions of people there? I mean, I know there are wonderful places in Phoenix, just like there are wonderful places in Houston. I don't know if there are any wonderful places in Boca Raton. There certainly are no wonderful places left in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-mm. There, I mean, but as you as you were saying, South Beach in Miami, it's a wonderful place. Hilarious. It is hilarious. It's so wonderful. But when I go to hot places, mm-hmm. now pa- Palm Springs is in the news up here a lot in Seattle because Palm Springs feels and, and, and always has for decades. Palm Springs feels like a place that Seattleites go in the same way that Florida is somewhere that people from Michigan go. Mm-hmm. Seattle people, if they want that, whatever that is you're talking about, they go to Palm Springs. My uncle and aunt moved to Palm Springs back in the 80s. And it used to be that in Palm Springs, just as you're saying, you could buy a super cool, you know, one-story mid-century house with a Mm -hmm. pool. And there was, Palm Springs had some rundown hotels and there were half a dozen steak restaurants that Frank Sinatra used to eat in. Right. Right. But you, but the point was not that you went to Palm Springs for culture. The point was that you went there because it was hot and you had a swimming pool. And I never understood it because hot and a swimming pool. Like I, I understand when we were in Hawaii earlier this year, Mm -hmm. we had a swimming pool in the place where we were staying and my daughter woke up every morning walked downstairs and walked immediately into the swimming pool and was there until she was forced to get out. And, oh, and we, she was only ever forced to get out because it was mealtime or because we had some, we had some crazy mission to go on. So watching that, I realized, oh, I am doing her a disservice as a parent in not living somewhere where we have a swimming pool. She would not care about toys. She would not care about any, she wouldn't care if we lived in a shack. If there was a swimming pool out there, she would be in it all day and she, she would never get tired of it. So I understand that. And I actually do feel kind of bad that we live in a place where swimming pools are incredibly impractical. But Palm Springs I mean, Palm Springs, we could have a could have a swimming pool. Every house in Palm Springs has a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. But what else is there to do? I mean, and I know there are some Palm Springs people that are like, you could hike up to the mountain. You can take the gondola up to the mountains. No. You can go over to Joshua Tree. Well, all right, live in Joshua Tree then. No, Joshua Tree is not a place to live unless you're unless you're like welding trucks together <laughs> to make to make a super truck. Like art truck. I don't want to make an art truck. I don't want to live in Palm Desert. I don't golf. I don't want it to be so hot. But 
increasingly like why live in Seattle, frankly, why live anywhere? I mean, I used to live in Seattle because God, it was, there were shows every night. There was great theater. I knew everybody. You could walk from place to place. Felt like a a town you could really engage with. Mm -hmm. It was the right scale. It was the right, you know, you, it was just small enough that you could know everybody, but just big enough that you were continually meeting new people that you had no idea why you didn't know already. Big universities here, like exciting. It was, there was a, there used to be a working class town too. So there was still like a lot of like amazing energy here that, that you don't get in a, in a rich town. Austin used to be like that. Yeah, it was. And you felt like you could know everybody in Austin if you just, if you eliminated all those dum-dums at the college, like everybody else seemed to all know each other. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, why do I live in Seattle again? Like I, like the city's moved on from me, right? The uh, downtown Seattle, Capitol Hill, they don't need me anymore. They're not interested in me and they don't have any, they're not they've got no reason to make any accommodation for me. Mm-hmm. My friends that are, that are my age that are still living on Capitol Hill, you feel like they are, they're just ho- holding on to the windowsill. Like just kind of still trying to do the same things they used to do, go to the same little small constellation of restaurants. It's mm-hmm. like all the, it's like people when they get into their late forties in Brooklyn or New York and they still have the, the like, the physical memory of having been young and going out and being, you know, electric in the, in the biggest city. And, but now they're in their middle age and they've presumably got some kids or not. But what they find is that they're just going to the same eight places. They go to the same store Mm -hmm. and they go to the same bars and they go to the same places. They end up in the same places. And once in a blue moon, somebody invites them to something that they, that they, you know, get up the gumption to do. But what they've really done is they've just got eight places they go to and they have to, they have to navigate like an incredibly difficult and exhausting clusterfuck every time they walk out their front door. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've watched it happen to a dozen people where they're like, why are we still living in New York? Mm-hmm. It was so, it was so great when I was 25 and now it's just like. I know, John, I know so many people that have moved from New York. Of course, they've all moved here, but there are so many people who are leaving those cities that were for so long, to use one of your words, a bastion Mm, for people to to go to and to live and to tout as being the greatest place on earth. And it was usually New York. A lot of the time it was San Francisco. And now I really, I, I think people feel differently about it i mean i'm listening to you talk about arizona i only spent a little bit of time in arizona i was in uh, a little bit in phoenix and scottsdale were the main two areas that i visited and this was many years ago 15 years ago if i had to guess and i thought it was beautiful i was there at a nice time of year it got nice and cool at night and you could do like a fire pit and you could you know they had a lot of different things and it was there were mountains and it looked alien you know, like, was it the desert? Was it a city? Was it, is it not? And I definitely can see the allure of parts of Arizona. But there was that guy, I remember at one point when we were driving, 
we were like all of a sudden out in just the desert. It was just desert and very, very close to where we had been in a city. And it seemed so inhospitable. And it seemed like transforming it. And I've always felt this about Vegas too. Transforming the desert into a place where people live. You know, I've, I realized how dependent I am on the infrastructure here in Austin. And Austin has lakes. Mm-hmm. And we get rain. And, you know, like you can... There are forests where animals live that you could, I suppose, hunt and live off of them if you needed to. But like these places that are just in the desert and there's no real clear reason why there is the city where it is even. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I'm with you on that. I'm with you. Uh, Yeah, Vegas is a classic example. But I think we're both we're both zeroing in on something and I can't I can't account for this. My whole life, I always had a list of a dozen places I wanted to live. You know, you want to live places. And and, uh, and it was always a kind of truism that there wasn't a better place to live than Seattle. We all up here, at least, agreed that when you arrived in Seattle, from wherever you'd been, wherever you were bewitched, Whatever town you just visited where you were like, oh, what am I doing? Why am I not living in Berlin or Austin or somewhere? Mm. And then you arrived back in Seattle and just looking out the window as the plane came in, you realized your folly and said, oh, I live in the best place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think – I don't think – anything ever shook that belief in us until the rise of Portland in the, you know, mid two thousands. And as Portland finally transformed itself from like a kind of a sleazy little hippie redneck town, which it was in 1998, it was Mm. just a town full of rednecks and hippies full stop and it was sleazy and the the transformation of portland which was you know they laid the groundwork to transform it a long time before it was they they did a they did smart urban planning in portland where they didn't do it in a lot of other places and it bore fruit but also portland was there as the as the culture turned and the culture said wait a minute we don't you know what about the smaller cities? What about the ones that have good transit? What about the ones that had, that had some historical preservation and didn't tear all their downtowns down? Portland was standing there with like a giant catcher's mitt. But when Portland became so fun and good to mm-hmm. be 20, 22 in, you know, or 25 in, and everywhere you looked, there was like, hey, it's a new store. And look at that. They're selling ferns. I didn't even know that was a thing you could do. Turns out it, you know, turns out you can, turns out you can, you can handcraft cat collars and that's enough to pay rent. It was the first time that Seattle thought, well, wait a minute, are we not the coolest place? I mean, Portland is, has got everything that's cool about Seattle, but it has 45% less bullshit. Well, of course, as you're saying, Portland just filled up with bullshit so fast. Um, they had a wonderful 
eight years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's what happens when you're wonderful. The bullshit just, just flows in. Um, but Seattle got an inferiority complex right around then. And, and, uh, you know, at that point it was like, I'd always wanted to live in New York. I'd always wanted to live all these places, but gradually as I stopped really wanting to live in Seattle, I also stopped wanting to live other places, but Dan, I haven't stopped wanting to live. I'm not, I'm not ready to stop living. Mm-hmm. I just don't like anywhere. And I think all the criticisms that, that you just leveled on Florida, you can kind of just tweak the, the lens a little bit. And that's true of everywhere. I, w- when I first started to go to LA, you could buy a house in Los Angeles for what seemed like pennies, hmm. even compared to Seattle, which at the time was not expensive. It felt like in the, even uh, into the two thousands, even well into the early two thousands, it just seemed like weirdly inexpensive to live in LA. You could buy a really cool place. You could live in Venice beach. You could, um, you could kind of live there and there wasn't a ton of like as a rock band, it was weird. There was not a ton of, of indie rock culture in LA. LA didn't produce a ton of indie bands. It wasn't where the energy was, you know, bands had to go to LA to play because that's where the music industry is. Mm -hmm. But, but ever since, hair metal went away. LA just wasn't the center of where, where cool music was being made. So it seemed kind of a backwards move as a band to move there. But watching Los Angeles go from this sprawling kind of inexpensive, it did feel like a, a, like a working class city to being another impossible place to live where it's just impossible impossible to afford a place and mm-hmm. impo- you have to be, <clears throat> you have to just be killing it to live there. And then it's also like really, really hard to get around and it's full of monsters and uh, little by little, I'm, I confront this kind of every day now because I walk out and I'm like, do I want to live here? Do I have enough dissatisfaction to put myself in motion? That's the, that's what it boils down to. Am I dissatisfied? Yeah. Is it enough to put me in motion? No. Is that any way to live? No. Is this whole, is that, is that tone even a way to, to use this one life you have? Right. Mm, eh. And that, you know, trying to solve that question is this about where I'm living or is this about something else? Well, maybe. Like, why do I sound so wishy-washy? Mm-hmm. Well, wishy-washy. Meh. And I don't know what to do about it. Like, <clears throat> I could set some small, I could, I could, I could make it a one question thing. I need a swimming pool for my kid. And so I'm going to do what it takes to get a swimming pool. And if that means that I have to leave Seattle and move to swimming pool town, USA and suffer all the indignities of living in a place where it's hot or whether, where it's, 
expensive or all these other things just to do this one thing, just to perform this one service for my kid. But then I'm like, really, are you going to your whole life for just the swimming pool? Like give her swim lessons, (laughs) take her to the YMCA. Not quite the same, but, but then it's like, well, what, what am I, what am I protecting? What am I, what, what exact sacrifices would, would that entail? Leave, leave Seattle where it's, where I kind of, every time I point my nose at the city, I kind of shudder a little bit. Mm. Like, oh God, I got to go into Seattle. Like, wow, it's just right there. You're feeling I mean, this, you're feeling this now, or you're anticipating the, the time when you feel this? Well, I mean, five years ago, I couldn't have been more engaged in civic life of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And King Neptune. I mean, that was only three two, years two, ago. Two, three, right, right, right. Couldn't have been more engaged. I, you know, I was everywhere. I had my foot in every pie, every room I walked into. I was like my dad. I had to shake 20 hands. Hi. And it started to happen before COVID. I feel like by 2019, I was just starting to orient myself, just, just starting to orient myself away because there was this the excitement of this move to the suburbs that seemed to have all this middle age promise. I've been watching this, this Hemingway documentary on PBS Hmm. and you know, at first it's like Ken Burns. And at first I wasn't sure if I was going to make it through. There's three episodes, but each one is two hours long. And you know, I always, uh, Loved Hemingway. I thought his writing really influenced me, but I also felt like he was a liar and a blowhard and a bully. And the the documentary started out, and it was kind of a hagiography at first. It was just like, oh, yeah, well, look at him. He's something else, isn't he? And there they are in Paris, and that seems like it was pretty great, I bet. And he's a little bit of a... He's a little faithless and he keeps leaving his wife. Um, and he's a little bit of a faker, but boy, he sure did knock it out. By the end of the third episode, you're like, wow, this is an American tragedy. Like, like the whole, the whole second half of this six hour thing. It's just really kind of brutal. Hmm. But when Hemingway was 47 years old, he looked 65. Well, that was the, the style of the time. It was, but he, you know, and they're all alcoholics, right? So they're, they're beat up, they're brutalized. But watching him and realizing like Hemingway died at 61. And when you see photographs of him as an older guy, he looks 81. And like this move that I made to the suburbs, the move away from Seattle the part of me that's like you chickened out or you should have stayed in the town and been like well, the people that I know that stayed in the town are, are just, you know, they're every time they walk out, they like strap on their armor. And I don't mean because the city's unsafe. I mean, they strap on their emotional armor because they don't belong there anymore. Uh, a, a city that has the, the energy of Seattle, like unless you are, unless you are in Seattle because you are the director of a ballet company, mm-hmm. when you're 50 years old and you're just kind of bu- bumping along, um, you're just in people's way. 
But to move to the suburbs and not have an uh, not have a plan to be in the suburbs and also kind of like killing it. Uh, that's a real dangerous, that's a risk that you don't want to take. You know, th- we all think we want a mountain cabin. <laughs> we all think we want to buy <laughs> some place. So you realize there's bears or whatever, right? Well, but, but <laughs> you get there and you realize like, oh shit, the only person I have out here is me. Mm. And that's who I was moving out here to get away from. You know, like <laughs> I, I didn't want to, like, how the hell did I get in here? <laughs> I remember when I was moving to North Carolina and uh, I was moving there because I really, really had, I'd been in Florida for too long and I just wanted to change. And I had visited North Carolina. I had some friends there. I had a kind of a, a big consulting thing that eventually turned into a, a really good job there. And I remember I was just looking forward to the climate being different and to the beauty of North Carolina. I mean, if you've ever, I know you visited, but gosh, there's so much, the forest is beautiful and they've got, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you can do so much there. And then there's the outer banks and there's, you know, like what, what are rafting and mountain climbing and hiking and these gorgeous trees. And, and it was like really nice. And they have like, sometimes it even snows in the winter. And I remember I was telling my aunt, she's like, why do you want to move there? And I told her kind of what I just told you. And she's like, you know, it's the same everywhere. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, wherever you go, it's the same. It's just, it is what it is. It's, you'll still be going to the same. You're still going to go to the grocery store. You still have to do laundry. You know, you still have to get your car washed. You still have to, you know, get your air conditioner fixed. It's like, it's the same. It's all the same. Wherever you go, it's the same. And I was like, wow, that sucks. Thanks for being such a downer. And she's like, well, it's true. Yeah. And Wherever it, it is, it's the same. It, you know, like if you think, like, first of all, she's right in some regards, but she's also very, very wrong. And she's right in the sense of wherever you go, there you are kind of thing, which is a little bit of what you were saying. But she's wrong in that many times you move somewhere and you have job opportunities that you never have before, or you meet people that never would have existed where you were coming from or you know you, it, as it used to be you had to live in San Francisco if you wanted to do a startup and that wasn't in like a, a media specific startup if you were doing anything else like San Francisco is where you had to be now you can kind of be anywhere but even just being in a place like San Francisco or New York or for that matter for in Austin which is where all the companies are are relocating to from California that really matters. If you say to someone, oh, I have a startup, we're doing XYZ. Oh, really? Where are you based? And you say, oh, I, mm, Indiana. They're like, oh, cool. Well, good luck. Uh-huh. But if you tell them, well, San Francisco, like, yeah, that makes sense. If you're like Austin, oh, that's cool. You like it, that kind of perception of that matters. If you took an identical company, identical, same people, everything, and said that you were based in Indiana, or Austin, you're going to get funded if you're in Austin before you're going to get funded in Indiana, for the most part. I think that's changing, and it shouldn't be that way, but it still is. And the fact that you're surrounded in some cities by like-minded people, I mean, that was the biggest thing for me when I showed up in Austin, was you could go to the coffee shop and hear people, in my case, technology nerd stuff, They would be. Ta- I could hear strangers talking about things that until that very moment I never heard anyone talking about except me 
And I was talking to people who were not where I was. I was talking to people who were in San Francisco. And there is that kind of vibe of a place. Like, do you think that you would have had the same kind of experiences that you had with music if you hadn't have been in Seattle, if you had been in a lesser known, unknown kind of city? I, I would say no. I think being in Seattle at that time period had to have played into, uh, into that. Don't you? Oh, I, <clears throat> I wouldn't have been a, a musician or had a career in music if I hadn't been in Seattle. Absolutely. But I think it's, you know, I think it's reasonable to go somewhere when you're 25 mm -hmm. or 20 mm -hmm. to pursue a dream. And I think, I think the, what happened to me was I didn't come to Seattle to be a musician. I came to Seattle because of, I don't know why I came to Seattle because, because I ended up in Seattle and then I followed the you know, I followed my nose. I became a musician because that was what was happening here. And in, um, and I had enough inclination toward it already because it had an element of writing to it. Like it was, it wasn't like bodybuilding. It was a thing that you could, it was a thing that had many, many elements that were smart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still during an era when we looked to musicians as our cultural leaders and as our, um, uh, like it, it was a place that maybe was artistically the most fruitful place, even though it wasn't what I set out when I left, when I left the, the warm embrace of my family and set out into the world, I didn't think all I want is to be a musician, but I did think I want to be in the culture. I want to be part of the conversation. I want to be, I want to influence and affect the conversation. And I still do. Although very differently now, I, I feel very much more that, that a smaller scale that, uh, I guess it's the, it's one of the things that I do think is wonderful about the internet is that, that you can affect the world in a very granular way. And actually it is a thousand points of light. Like I can, if there was a mapping program where every person listening to this program appeared on the globe as one little light, one little light um yeah there would be concentrations uh clusters of light in new york san francisco seattle los angeles boca raton mm. but then you'd see all these lights in scandinavia and a lot of them in england although spread all over or, or great britain and then all around the world, all these crazy little, little lights, you know, like, like, uh, uh, omnibus Ken Jennings and I got a letter 
yesterday from someone in Chile who's like, I'm in Chile. I just wanted you to know that you have a listener down here. I was like, he's not the only one probably. And that is crazy. Like that's wonderful. And that's, that's so different than needing to be in Seattle because that's where indie rock was. And it's very different also from happening to be in Seattle and happening to become an indie rocker because why not? Mm-hmm. Because you go to enough shows. I mean, a big part of what influenced me was I, I saw so many shows and so many of them were bad that I felt like, wow, I could do this. I could do this. If these guys can do this, if that band can play here on a Thursday night, then I can put a band together that can play here on a Thursday night. You've mm-hmm. got to be kidding me. And then, of course, when you do it, you realize it's a lot harder than that. Nothing is inevitable. You don't just step in. You don't think, you don't think I'm smarter than these guys, so I'm just going to step in. Because that's true of everything, right? You look, I'm sure you looked at 500 startups and went, those people are dorks <laughs> and that startup is stupid, right? But it's so different to actually put your own thing together and, and step in and shoulder the, those dorks out of the way. And then, and that it activated something in me that I, uh, it's very hard for me to go back and remember, like, how did I have so much determination and perseverance and pluck. I don't think of myself as having any of those characteristics. You were just younger. You were just younger. I was younger. Right. That's that simple. Like you, you don't, you don't, when you're young like that, you don't know that you're acting that way. You don't feel those things. It just makes, you're just doing the stuff that you do. Just doing the thing you do. I had a, I had a friend and I, and friend in, gargantuan quotation marks, gargantuan art, uh, ironic quotation marks because he was the least friendly friend a person could have. His name was Jason and he, he worked with me at the off ramp, my first job mm-hmm. and he was beautiful. I mean, he was kind of like a, like a, one of those dark haired, a little chubby, but beautiful men who <laughs> there's a certain, you know, there's certain, they're, they're just cherubic, you know, like angelic, dark eyebrows, long, curly, dark hair. And he had this disaffection, this attitude of just like, not only was everything dumb, but he was just exhausted by interacting with other people and, Women loved him, just loved him. And it was infuriating because he was, I mean, it's always infuriating to me when women love anyone that isn't me, but he was particularly infuriating and he had a great job at the club. We, we worked at together. His job was to sit at the door and take people's tickets. And it's a incredibly powerful job in a, in a rock club because, Oh yeah. You're God. Basically you were the ev- gatekeeper of the, the fun times. Yep. Every single person that comes to the show has to w- not just walk past you, but interact with you somewhat. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that can say, no, not you. Sorry. Show sold out, you know, but, but he has no, there. it's not his responsibility to enforce anything. Because if he says something, then he just kind of waves his hand in the air and some security guard comes over and actually deals with the person. 
Well, so Jason graduated over the years after we both left the employee of that club. Jason went into the booking side and ended up working as a booking agent for a new club called Numos. Or at the time, it was Moe's Moroccan Cafe. So it wasn't Numos. Numos <laughs> was what they turned Moe's into when they started it up again mm. after Moe's closed. But Moe's was the name of the, the club. And Moe's was the new Capitol Hill Rock Club. And Jason was not the chief booker, but like the other booker. But a booker. And eventually became the chief booker. Well, he and I knew each other. We had worked together. We had jammed together even. And I would go to the club. And at the time, their office was down in the basement. And the basement was, they hadn't dug it out. It was dirt floors down there. And you would walk on these planks that they'd laid down in the dirt. Uh, And the planks took you to this underground room that I guess did have a floor and there were computers in there and that's where their office was, their booking office. It was crazy. That whole thing's been dug out now and it's a, and it's its own separate club, the basement of this bar. But at the time it was, it was like you had to duck to avoid hitting the pipes. Anyway, I would sit in a chair and I would say, Jason, you got to book my band at the, at Moe's. And Jason would say, yeah, I just don't hear, uh, I just don't hear it. I don't think that you're like ready. I was like, we made a demo tape. We're a band. We're as good as anybody. Just, just give us a shot. Give us a chance. Yeah. I'm looking at the calendar. I just don't see any of these bills that you would fit into. And day after day, week after week, I'm like, you and I are friends. What the hell is our relationship worth to either of us? If you don't book my band in your club, like, what are you talking about? This is exactly how the music industry is supposed to work. (laughs) I know you from a thing. I have this thing. You turned into that thing. Now I come to you and you give me a show. That's the, that's the whole point. And he thought the point was that he stood between me and the show because that was, because he was. 25 and feeling his oats. And he was an important guy now he thought and keeping me from the show was his, was his place. You know, he thought his job was to, was to book pavement to play the show. And yet I did not ever as much as I hated it and hated him. I never stopped. I kept going, putting my feet up on his desk and saying, you've got to book me. And what was funny was like person to person, I didn't, Jason didn't have anything over me. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't polite to him. I didn't try to make him my friend. I wasn't a nice person to him. This was a, this was just in business. He had this advantage. And now, nowadays, if I went somewhere and they were like, yeah, sorry, I would say, and this, this happened years ago. I started to say like, I'll never play your club. And here's the thing. One day you will choke on it. <laughs> I started to have that, but I didn't when I was 25. I was just like, <laughs> okay, well, I'll see you next week and I'll be back with another demo tape. And this time you're going to see. 
but I don't need to live anywhere now to accomplish I, nothing that I have in mind for the next 20 years of my life requires that I be any particular place. It just requires that I have space to work. I honestly could do it from a mountain cabin. And even if you wanted to collaborate with other people, I remember I interviewed, you remember MC Front a lot? Remember I know him? MC Front a lot quite well. I, um, I, you know, I, I appeared on one of his tracks. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I, maybe you'll be able to talk about this a little bit. Um, I interviewed him a long time ago and he was talking about how he had just finished this album and he had, all, you know, all these different, maybe, maybe you were even on this album. I don't know. It was before we knew each other. And he was talking about how he had collaborated with these different people on a, and, and he's like, and what's amazing is we've done it all in different places. None of us have ever been in the same room when, uh, when we were doing this stuff. And I was just so blown away by that. And of course it makes sense. Like you ship someone the, the track and they sing and record their own track and send it back to you. I'm like, of course it could work like that. But and I always still have that. And I know that this, and maybe you could even talk about this because this is something kind of cool. When you think about like in your imagination and mine as a non band member and non band member recording musician person i still like to think that the band is sort of jamming together in the same room and they got their different instruments mic'd up and maybe they got the, the drums in its own room to kind of isolate the sound but everyone else kind of jamming together like that closing scene of um the jim morrison movie where they're all just sort of jamming around together and like the stories you read are like led zeppelin when they rented that old house and like jimmy page would you know, put the microphone down the hall to get this eerie sound from the guitar. He was using the bow on it, you know, like that kind of stuff. But in reality, I guess it, I guess people are rec couldn't even record most of their tracks separately. Can't they? Like you don't necessarily need to be in the room together. Do you, how does it happen? What, what actually happens there? It's, it's a, it, it boils down to a click track, right? When Jimmy Page and John Bonham were, were writing cashmere mm. i don't think that they started a t -t 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 <laughs> in bonham's headphones and so it's it's essential that they be there with each other mm. I, I i tell that story about when i made when i w uh, laid down the piano track for commander thinks aloud and um and then we had the drummer matt chamberlain come in to play on the record and he listened to my piano playing and I was playing to a click track and he was like, oh my God, you really needed me here. You should have played this track to me playing the drums because you're bad at playing to a click track. And if you and I were here looking at each other and you and I were playing together, I could have influenced your piano part with the drums I was playing and we would have, you, you could have played a much better piano and he he's a musician that can talk that way to other people and i was like yes sir um i was disappointed but of course he was he was he was right but if you're playing to a click track everybody's in time with each other it's just a question of are you capable of of getting a groove to a click and most people aren't and if you're in the room with each other, you can you can catch a groove with each other. Even if the drummer is playing 
to a click track in his headphones, even if everybody has a click track, which mm-hmm. they probably shouldn't, um, you, you're playing with each other. You're looking at each other and you find the, you find the emotion in the music. And I've played with a few musicians where they had so much groove to contribute that it was impossible to play with them without getting into uh, this marvelous place where you're just like, I can't believe how well I'm playing. And it's because I'm playing with this person that is, that just has so much music in them that it's impossible to, why would you fight it? You can't fight it. You just, you know where the rhythm is and you're, and you're not responsible Right. That's the, that's the other thing. I'm not responsible for creating this groove uh, that is handed off to these, to these people that are better than me. And I'm just responsible for like doing my part here. So that's why you play with each other. That's why you are in the room with each other. But most modern music and most modern musicians have no, uh, they, they use the word groove it means a thing, but it's, it doesn't mean the same thing. Um, if everybody's playing to their own click track Mm -hmm. and, and sending the music in, you can all be very precise. You can all be on the, you can all be in, in the pocket even. And the computer can smooth over little variations, but Mm -hmm. what you're getting is a thing. You're getting a thing that sounds right and it sounds good. You're getting contemporary music, but there's no, but that whatever that swing is, um, it's now, is that something? Is that impossible. something that 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 you as a musician would notice, but as an average listener, they wouldn't notice. You would not know. You would uh, the average listener would not be able to say what was missing, but they would hear something missing. No, they would just, it's, I mean, pop music continues to be very, very popular made entirely on computers mm-hmm. where the voices have all been manipulated. No one was in the room. Most of the music, most of the instruments were made synthetically. That still sounds fun and good and fine. It's just when you put it up against be my baby, mm. Or, um, you know, or dock of the bay or something. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, whoa, what is happening? Why do I feel this way now? Why am I able to? So what happened? Did you re-record? Did you replay the piano with him? No, I mean, uh, you, you probably haven't heard it or if you haven't, um, or if you did, maybe you forgot it. But I tell the story on that song exploder episode. Oh, um, that's right. I listened to that so long ago. Yeah, no. Oh, what man, he I did gotta was, find that to put into the into the show notes. He is such a genius, and he really is. Matt Chamberlain is one of those people that on uh, there on it is the drum ep- episode twenty eight, January thirtieth, twenty fifteen. The episode episode twenty eight, the Long Winters, the Commander thinks aloud. Yeah. All right, and putting I, that, this in the show notes. That's one of the only podcasts I've ever listened to. That episode. And I listened to it because so many people commented on how, um, how much they enjoyed it that eventually 
I said, I'm going to listen to that. I don't remember anything about this episode. I've forgotten that you even talked about this on there. What's weird is that we recorded it live. And I don't, at the, I, at the time, uh, Rishi Hirway had never recorded an episode of Song Exploder live. It was always done, over, you know, either in a studio with the other person or over the phone, but never in front of a live audience. Mm. And he wanted to do it. And at the time I was doing uh, shows at the Rendezvous all the time. And he was like, why don't we do it? You know, why don't we do a live show in Seattle? And I said, I know the venue. It's the right size. And it and I have an audience that comes there already. And so we recorded it live. And it was a hour plus show uh, in the theater that he then cut down to be a half an hour or even a 20-minute episode. So it was – I did want to listen to it because I didn't understand how he could have edited this hour-long conversation in half. And in listening to it, I realized he has a tremendous gift. The, the, the show he does, Song Exploder, like one thing he does is he edits himself completely out of it. You never hear his voice or you barely do. He comes in – you know, he narrates it a little bit, but you don't hear his questions. He's a great editor and – he made an incredibly tight show, but it was, a, uh, you know, it was like listening to it. I was moved. I felt like he had made a, he'd made a piece of art in taking our conversation and turning it into what he turned it into. But Matt Chamberlain's gift was he had the ability to listen to my wonky and square and ungroovy piano part <laughs> and play around it and impart groove to it. And I watched him do it. And he said to Tucker Martin, the producer, he was like, okay, play it for me with the click track. And he listened to it and played along a couple of times, tried to do it. And he was like, no, that's not going to work. And what he meant was that the click was over here. He was used to playing to clicks. He could do that. And I was so square and by square i just mean like unhip mm -hmm. against the click track that it wasn't possible for him to play with them both in and so he said turn the click off and listened to just my part and he got my vibe <laughs> figured out like what what I thought I was doing and then started to play the drums to my thing and I think everybody understood that to try and re-record it at this point with me playing the piano live with him was not that was not that was going to be a uh, an exercise in futility and partly it was that the piano and the drums were in the same room there just wasn't going to be a way to isolate the piano, it we would have quadrupled our work. So he was just like, yeah, okay, I think I can do this. And he did, you know, he said it kind of like, um, like a cosmetic surgeon who was like, I can, you know, I can try to fix your overbite, but no guarantees. And he played, he basically played around my piano and has enough of an ear that he could he could hear my pulsation and 
sort of anticipate where I was going to land and and cover for me, for lack of a better term. Mm. Not just cover for me, but like cup my rhythm in in a in his own better vibe. And, and he did it by playing a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, depending on where I was. But these days, I wouldn't even know, I wouldn't even know where to start. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that there will always be musicians that have that because it's, a combination of lots and lots and lots of practice, but it's the kind of practice that you only are inspired to do if you have a gift. If you are, if you are gifted like he is or like Joe Russo is on the drums, Mm -hmm. well, then you practice and practice and practice. Uh, it's not a thing that you could get if you, if you didn't have the gift, but practiced, you could never practice your way into that gift, right? Um, just like you could never practice your way into being an Olympic gymnast. You have to be an incredible gymnast. You have to be, have just an incredible body for the sport and then practice and practice and practice. So there will always be musicians like that. I just don't know. And maybe the modern world is better for them because they have – they have access to so many more opportunities. They can sit in their home studio and play to other people's wonky tracks Mm -hmm. and send the, send the track off and, and that's their job. You know, when I first met front a lot, we were sitting backstage at something and he was, he was very popular. Then he was like kind of one of the first nerd rappers. Yeah. And, um, and it was one of those, you know, you bunch of musicians backstage, there's a kind of language that you use with each other when you're, when you're just meeting and, and there's a component of it of like, Oh, here we are again, right (laughs) backstage at another venue that smells vaguely of bleach. And boy, look at this basket of candy bars that they you know, like, um, they're not even ever candy bars, basket of energy bars and one bottle of five buck Chuck. (laughs) And so in the course of that conversation, there's a little bit of back and forth. And then front a lot says, I think what I said was, well, you know, been in a thousand of these and that's how we get where we are, whatever. And front a lot said, Um, the first show I ever played had 800 people at it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'd never played a show, but I put some music up on the internet. It became popular. And then I realized I needed to book a show. And so I booked a show and it had 800 people at it. And at the, you know, at the time it was just like, what? Yeah. Like I didn't understand. And this was early on in the, in the Jonathan Colton years where that's basically what happened to him. You know, he Mm -hmm. put his music on the internet and then 
was like, uh-huh, I guess I should book some shows. People are asking me to book some shows. And he went and did a tour of the United States and played 1,800-seat venues everywhere he went wow. with an acoustic guitar and a T-shirt. And I, I don't understand why he ever put a band together or did anything different. He should have just done that, toured the world with a T-shirt and an acoustic guitar. And um, you know, that's, all of our, that's all of our dream, frankly. It's just not your dream if, if that's what you're doing. Your dream is always to have a rock band and be Led Zeppelin. It's just that then you do that and you're like, oh, God, this is such a pain in the ass. But Frontalot had not done – he had never played night after night for 25 people. Mm-hmm. He had never, mm-hmm. He'd never gone on tour. He'd never been at a coffee shop in Arlington, Virginia where they scooted the tables over to the side so that you could set up your gear and play for a bunch of uh, kids in sub pop hats. Like he just put some music up on the internet and it connected with people. And then he played his first live show. It was the, it was the, uh, it was the reverse order. And most people never play to 800 people. Like if you can play to 800 people, you're doing great. That's incredible in your hometown, let alone anywhere else. And that's, uh, I mean, that's when I knew that it wasn't the same anymore. And that was over a decade ago. So I don't know what I feel like when the, when the, when the quarantine is finally over, there's going to be, a generation of 20 year olds who their teenage years or a generation of kids that are between 16 and 20, where they just lost a very important year. Like my daughter lost a year between nine and 10. Mm. And when she's 20, she'll barely remember it. And she actually had a year between nine and 10 where she got to see her parents every day, day in and day out. And the benefit of that probably outweighs the, like she, she lost a year of social development, like Mm -hmm. everybody her age, right? but they'll catch up. They're going to get back to school. They're going to get right back into it. Um, what we had as a family was an incredibly great year. We got to really, really be together at a time when that was still something that she could, that she wanted or didn't know she wanted, but, but kids between, you know, 15 and and 19, this was a important year of their teenage life. This was like every one of those years between, I don't know, I keep, I keep moving the scale around, but between 13 and 19, every one of those years is irreplaceable. You learn so much. It all changes so fast to lose one, to just, and so those kids are going to come back to the world, um, like measurably changed, you know, in mostly, I think in, in, in ways that they, they will remember and that are, that have done a hard damage to them. Because they missed out on whatever their first dance, their first kiss, their, their first, all the things, all the times. And another thing that is missing is they haven't been, a lot of those kids missed out on their first 
live show. Because during that, somewhere in those teenage years, is the first time that you and your friends go to see a concert together. And I bet you remember your first one. What was it? I Dan. don't know if I, I, mean, I don't know if I remember it. You don't remember your first concert? No. Your first rock concert. You're the one person in the world that doesn't remember their first rock concert. I give me a minute. Your first rock concert. No, I've seen, I've seen so many of them. Yeah, but it's your first one. Was it Hall and Oates? Was <laughs> it Kiss? No. Was it Barbara Streisand? Like, who did you go see? Because there's a moment before you're old enough to go to a concert. And then there's the moment that you're finally old enough and you go to your first rock concert. I'll tell you what I remember. What I remember the most is going to the Guns N' Roses concert that was on New Year's Eve, 89 to 90. It was at what was then called Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami. And it was a full house. I think Joe Robbie Stadium probably sat 75,000 people, but they had a certain section of it blocked off because it was like the sides or behind the stage that they didn't have people in. So I guess there was, it could have been 40,000 people. I mean, it was one of these insane, all mostly full concerts. And it was New Year's Eve. And they had fireworks when they played Paradise City. And I remember that pretty well. But I don't think that was my first concert. And I don't really remember what the first concert was. And well, I know it wasn't that. But when I was in college, I worked at, I got a job at the uh, UCF Arena. Because at the time, Orlando did not have any really good separate venues for a lot of the acts to come in. So like there was like the big stadium venue and then there was like the smaller one and the UCF arena was the smaller one. And I got a job there as an usher specifically so that I could see concerts for free. And I saw dozens and dozens and dozens of really great concerts. Everyone from extreme to Vince Gill to, you know, more graduations than I could imagine having ever seen. But I can't remember what my very first one was. That's crazy. But seeing Guns N' Roses in 1989 is a pretty good story. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Was there my buddy Paul, he had a lazy eye. And yeah. uh, one time one time uh we were driving on the highway and there was this hood. Like this was 2 a.m. somewhere on I-95. And there was like a hood like of a car, like a hood on the dr- on on the ground on the on the street and we're driving closer and closer to it. And I, I'm like, he sees that he's not, and he's heading right for it. I'm like, he's, he's messing around. He sees that. I know he sees that. And it's getting closer and closer. There's no one else on the road for miles. And he ran right over the damn thing. <laughs> he doesn't remember that. Yeah. Well, he had a gold 1979 Pontiac Trans Am. There you go. Although 78 is the better. better yes, it is. Yes, it is. His was a 79. 
but the 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 point I was getting at is I think that this generation of this teenagers This is going to bug me, John. Now I can't remember. What well, it'll it'll come to you in the middle of the night. And, and when it does, you can text me. <laughs> but the generation of kids that never had their first concert are going to have their first concert one day. And even though people are getting vaccinated now, I don't think the music industry is exactly opening back up. You know, maybe this summer we'll start to see big shows again. But there's going to be, I think, a resurgence of rock music. Because mm -hmm. rock music's been on the decline for, for a while. It just kind of put, putters along in the background, but it's not the focus and hasn't been for several years. But you're going to have a bunch of kids who I think even the idea of like getting together and playing music together is going to feel a little transgressive because it's like, we're not wearing masks. We're in a small room. We're rocking out. And then we're going to play a show and all the other kids are going to be there. It's mm -hmm. like the drug. It's like the same thing about doing drugs. It's just like, they're going to just, the drugs are going to be that they're all in a room together. That's the dangerous thing. And they're going to rediscover punk rock or they're going to think they invented it themselves. Well, that's what all the young people think is that they, I mean, every, every group of kids eventually invents kickball. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs>